I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients. From cellular and immune health, to brain and nervous system support, to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kratzer here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. Have you ever thought about the difference between eyesight and vision? Uh, to be honest, I hadn't before this podcast. Uh, I talked with Dr. Bryce Applebaum, who is a pioneer in neurooptometry, passionate about unlocking life's potential through vision. And his expertise includes reorganizing the visual brain post-concussion to be able to return to normal life, remediating visual developmental delays, interfering with reading and, and learning, and then enhancing visual skills to elevate athletic performance. He also is an expert in the impact of screen use in children on the development of vision and brain development in general. Uh, there's a strong correlation between ADHD and other behavioral disorders in children and vision, which I wasn't aware of prior to this interview. And there are some really um, concerning changes that have happened in trends in screen use in both children and, and adults that impact uh, vision and brain development. And we covered all of these in the show. We also talked about this emerging field of vision therapy, which can help reverse some of those impacts. So this is a, a must listen for parents and for anybody that's dealing with eyesight or vision problems and anyone who's interested in the relationship between vision and brain development. It was a fascinating show. I learned a lot myself and this is definitely something I'm going to be focusing on, pun intended, um, more in my own life and in my, my work with people uh, going forward. So hope you enjoy the show as much as I did. Let's dive in. 
Dr. Bryce Applebaum, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Let's just jump right in and talk about the difference between eyesight and vision. I don't know that I've ever thought about that. And this, you know, I'm in the healthcare field. I imagine most lay people haven't thought about it either. And why is that so important? Yes, I, I would say you are not alone. Um, the majority of eye doctors are, and doctors in general, are, are solely focused on the pursuit of seeing 2020. But there's so much more to vision than just 2020 eyesight. So I like to describe eyesight as just simply the ability to see, whether that's letters on the letter chart or street sign or what the teacher writes on the board in the classroom. Um, vision is far more complex. Vision is entirely brain. And vision is how uh, our brain tells our eyes how to move together and focus and converge and track and process information and essentially how we derive meaning from the world around us and then direct the appropriate action. So vision problems are brain problems and vision problems are treatable and avoidable and preventable. Uh, but so much of, of healthcare simply looks at intervention of eye disease and structure and eyesight, but we really need to all be looking at, at the vision component as well. That's fascinating. Um, the relationship between the brain and vision and, uh, you know, one <laughs> thing that popped into my head as you were talking about about that is even just like the influence of things like psychedelic drugs on vision and how, you know, how the, how the brain processes the input that's coming in through the retinas can be totally different when someone is, you know, taking psilocybin than it is when they're not. And that to me, seems like an indicator that of, of how much of a role the brain plays in processing that sensory input. And it's, it's crazy to think, but we can literally train our brain how to process the world differently. We can train our brain how to engage periphery and be more open to what's around us or the opposite to kind of lock in more focally or centrally. And we know with so many situations in life where there's stress from our environment and we adapt to that stress, vision can be that dominant sensory system that we learn how to have guide and lead uh, so we can integrate what's in front of us centrally and what's around us peripherally simultaneously so we can be really confident navigating through space. Hmm. A couple other examples that come to mind, and I think we'll probably talk about one of them more when we talk about screens, but I, I've read research on how staring, looking at a two-dimensional screen in kids affects the development of empathy, um, which was just kind of a fascinating link to me, at least when I first learned about it, that just something in our visual field could actually affect our capacity to empathize with other human beings. And from a developmental standpoint, I mean, vision is intended for us to engage with our three-dimensional world and to guide movement. And, you know, so many of, of our children's worlds now and environments are being compromised by engaging with two-dimensional space and not developing the interpersonal communication and the ability to read facial expressions and body language. Um, and so there's very scary consequences of this new tech world that we're all living in, which isn't going away, but in terms of how that's influencing social, social development, emotional development, and of course, vision development. Yeah. I want to come back to that because I'm, I'm, hugely concerned about this. I, it's a t frequent topic on my podcast. And by this, I mean, relation, our relationship with screens as a species, but particularly the impact of screens on, on kids and childhood development. 
Um, another example that popped into my mind with are those kind of visual, I don't know what you call them, but the puzzles where you look at them in different ways and you see different things depending on how you look at them and even like when you soften your gaze versus when you sort of focus in on a particular point. I imagine that is exactly what you're talking about with how the brain affects that visual input and how we can train ourselves to see things differently based on our, our gaze and how we hold our gaze. hundred percent. And another parallel to that would be the, the old magic eye books where we are, there's kind of two ways to allow that depth to really pop out. We can soften our gaze like you shared and, and uh, engage in periphery and diverge our eyes. So almost looking through the page. And then we notice that when our both eyes are working together and the brain's turning on to that sensory input and filtering it and processing it appropriately, the, the three-dimensional image pops out or vice versa, looking hard and closer and converging our eyes, uh, an alternate effect can occur. And what's pretty cool is when you learn how to have a good rapport with space and learn how to control those systems at will, you can make a magic eye have the image pop out and the background goes backwards. Or if you look at it the opposite way, the opposite occurs and, and the background pops forward and the image goes backwards. And um, on a daily basis with, with my specialty with vision therapy, you know, we're typically working with individuals who have problems, whether it's uh, developmental delays visually that's impacting reading and learning and academics or rewiring the brain post-concussion after... Uh, the visual centers are no longer communicating with the postural and, and body centers like they should, or eye turns or lazy eyes. And I'm sure we can talk at length in, in, in any of these areas, but we can learn how to have better eye coordination and better eye coordination learns how to, it teaches us how to have better eye brain body integration, which is so important for sports and driving and just navigating through life in a safe and confident manner. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of the factors that affect both eyesight and vision. I, I imagine there's some similarities and also some differences. Um, you know, I think most people would would just probably assume it's largely like whether you need reading glasses or you're, you're nearsighted or farsighted is largely genetic. So I'm curious, you know, what the research says in terms of the role of genetics versus other environmental factors like nutrient status. And, you know, we, that's a big part of my work. And I'm, you know, most people think nutrient deficiency is something that's limited to the developing world. But of course, that's absolutely incorrect. There are a lot of people uh, in, in the industrialized world who are suffering from mild to moderate nutrient deficiencies that could affect things like eyesight. So I'm, I'm just curious how that you know, what the research shows there. Absolutely. So vision in general is a learned system. And when every child is born, we can't converge our eyes or track our eyes or focus our eyes and depth perception is not in place and we see in black and white. And then through our life experiences and develop, developing the ability to use both sides of our body and get the reciprocal body coordination from crawling and then walking we develop the ability to use our eyes together and we develop the ability for our visual system to emerge. So that's something that's either learned well or not learned as well as it could be. And that's when some intervention is needed. Um, more so than ever these days, kids are being introduced to technology and screens earlier, earlier and earlier than ever and being asked to read at earlier and earlier ages, often before they're visually ready. And Chris, you know better than anybody, when our systems are under stress, we either adapt or we avoid. 
the majority of vision problems are maladaptations or not having the visual foundation in place to meet the demands of our world uh, based off of what's being asked of us in our world we're not visually ready for. So for developing prescriptions and developing the ability to just see eyesight wise, we know that there's two main components, genetics and environment. Obviously we can't control genetics, but from an environment standpoint, visual systems can be taught, they can be enhanced, they can be remediated to be able to guide and lead in the appropriate fashion. Uh, we now know with myopia, for instance, which is nearsightedness, uh, there, it, it's a new pandemic almost in, in countries that value education and technology. And we know that a child born today to two parents, neither of which are nearsighted, that child has a one in four chance of becoming nearsighted. If those two individuals having children, one of them is nearsighted and the other is not, there's a one in three chance. And if both parents are nearsighted, a one in two chance. So we know that is mainly from the environmental standpoint and the fact that so many of us are not getting uh, the UV exposure and the, the sunlight that we need outdoors, which is so crucial to so many aspects of development, but specifically brain and vision development. And we know that um, you know being exposed to blue light and to artificial light from screens at a very high uh, frequency and magnitude can disrupt circadian rhythms and uh, can be a driving force behind metabolic disorders and even cancers. And so, you know, I think you bring up a very interesting point, you know, nutrition plays a huge role, environment plays a huge role. Um, but in, you know, countries where there is malnutrition, there's a much higher likelihood of, of structural vision problems. But often those countries don't have access to the technology that we have in countries that uh, maybe don't have as many of those concerns. And so it's definitely a, a balance back and forth between you know, what's occurring, but we know at least with a macula, which is the, the sweet spot of, of our retina, the back layers of our eye that allow us to see clearly in that 2020 zone, there are so many supplements and nutrients that can uh, significantly improve the quality of that area. And, you know, certain foods like dark green leafy vegetables that have lots of lutein and zeaxanthine are phenomenal for those, that area. And antioxidants and vitamins like A, C, E uh, can decrease the risk of diseases forming down the road, like macular degeneration or cataracts. You know, omega-3s are phenomenal for overall brain health, but especially eye health as well. And specifically the outer layer of the tear film, which can be more viscous and be protective for, for so many of us. So from a nutrition standpoint, um, there is so much that we can all be doing to just maximize our brain's ability to use our eyes efficiently. Yeah, and even just those essential nutrients that you mentioned, I think the latest statistics suggests 89% don't get enough vitamin E and 67% don't get enough uh, vitamin A, and that's that's in the U.S., you know, one of the richest, most developed countries in the world. I think vitamin C is close, to, uh, just below 50 percent, 48, 49 percent. So, the, to me, that's low-hanging fruit uh, that people that that you know people can leverage to improve their vision and their eyesight. So let, let's get back to some other causes of 
especially now with screen, I think this would be a good segue to talk about screens and how screens impact vision in both kids and adults, because we're talking about factors that affect the development of, of vision. And like you said, that's that's largely a learned capacity because kids, when you know, infants that are born don't have that yet, that hasn't developed. So what are the implications of the dramatic increase uh, in screen use in kids from a developmental perspective, since that is an anomaly from a historical perspective. There's never been a time in human evolutionary history where kids have had the level of exposure to two-dimensional screens that they have had now. And what, what kind of impact is that having on the development of vision? So when we were kids, Chris, our, our parents had to drag us in from being outside and, you know, we would not want to be inside, not want to be around the table. We'd want to be playing sports and, and climbing in the woods. And now parents are dragging their kids outside after being stuck indoors in low light for, for way longer than we should. Um, we spoke about the, the cognitive, emotional, social implications, but you know, there's more software and education now than ever at earlier ages. Apps are made to be addictive to create an environment where we want to come back for more and, and allow for that neurotransmitter dopamine to really be excitatory and be released and make us feel good and want to come back. But life, light levels really have a large influence on vision, on prescription development. Uh, we know myopia, nearsightedness is, can, is, is induced from excessive near visual stress. And we're now seeing myopia increase at an alarming rate in terms of magnitude, as well as frequency, and even high levels of, of myopia. Um, we can't change the genetics, but we can change the environment. And so there are so many things we can all be doing to minimize these negative impacts. But there's also clear warning signs when uh, both in terms of performance and physical signs when screens are presenting too much challenge for us to be able to interpret or make sense of um, headaches, eye strain, resistance to learning, early blurry vision far away, uh, screens going into, into and out of focus, reading problems, postural adaptations like tilting our heads or turning our heads or you know, leaning forward to get closer to the screen because our focusing system's not functioning the way we should. Um, and, and so, you know, especially as the print gets smaller and that can be a clear sign for a child when they're rather be read to or avoiding reading because they don't have the system in place to extract meaning from those words. Um, so, you know, from a myopia standpoint, from a, a structural standpoint, we know structure and function are very much intimately related. Um, but we also know that so much can be done to help make uh, that, that visual stress less, less of an issue for us moving forward. So, yeah, let's unpack the, the impact a little bit more. It seems to me there are several different, there's several characteristics of screens and the way that kids and adults use screens that stand out. One is just the physical nature of staring at something that's two-dimensional that's anywhere from a few inches to a couple feet in front of your face. I mean, our generation grew up watching TV, but the difference usually in most cases was TV was, you know, 10 feet away or more. You're sitting on a couch and 
And it seems to me that the, even that alone has a, a different impact. So there's like just the distance, the viewing distance, uh, and, and the mechanics of that. Then there's the nature of what's happening with eyes and tracking movements. Like so, and that will be different depending on what they're doing with the screen, like a video game or something, you know, where the, there's like constant motion and eye tracking going in different directions in a, in a rapid way that seems somewhat un, like it wouldn't happen very often in a natural environment without screens. And then you mentioned like the type and small type and, you know, having to really focus in on a very small things that you wouldn't typically do. Are there, is there research showed like differential consequences or impacts of those different things or does it all sort of blend together in the research at this point? I, absolutely. The the larger the screen, the farther away, the better. Mm-hmm. And with these close screens, it's a shorter working distance, which means the inside and outside muscles of our eyes that control making something clear and single and keeping it that way are stimulated in ways that they would not be when we're looking beyond arm's length and our eyes in our natural resting position. Uh, so what that means is the the need to focus and then converge our eyes doesn't exist when we're watching on screens far away. With computers and with more uh, near sedentary types of technology, it's it's a greater impact in terms of the direct light that's being presented. There's glare, there's a lack of tactile feedback and hand-eye coordination that comes with learning and more of a distance-related task. And the eye movements you mentioned, you know, evolutionarily, our tracking system was meant to gaze in the horizon. And now we're having to make these very careful integral eye movements with a small artificial plane up close. Uh, And we know on screens compared to even just reading on paper, we skim and we scan much more quickly when reading digitally versus in print. There's even a, a tremendous problem now with dryness that's emerged from all this screen use where we know that the, the blink rate decreases dramatically on screens versus in real life. Um, you know, the average person blinks anywhere from 15 to 20 times a minute. And depending on the studies you read, we now know that it's about a third of that when we're on the screen, meaning we're literally locked in, zoned out, not making those automatic eye movements and, and blinking movements. And so dry eye syndrome, and computer vision syndrome are creating this scenario where even our tear film, the, the windshield of, of our car is no longer clear to see through, and that, that can exacerbate uh, a lot of other problems as well. I, I think I've heard of injuries uh, 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 in gamers um, from not blinking for excessive period Crazy. of time. Am I making that up? I, it seems like I've read that. You are not making that up. Um there's significant dry eye. I've heard of stories of, of gamers literally being so in a trance, so locked in focally that World War III could be going on around them and they would have no idea. And, you know, the need to use the restroom and to, to, to eat and to just get up becomes a daunting task when you're literally stuck in that focal central processing, which from a brain standpoint, is really making uh, the ground less aware because you're so locked in on the figure. So is this also what's behind 
the increase in nearsightedness in children? And first of all, is there an increase in nearsightedness? Because I know you see a lot of media articles, but those are not, I, I have plenty of experience with not trusting, um, you know, the, the headlines that I see in, in the media about these sorts of things. So first of all, is, is there actually a, an increase in nearsightedness that's been documented by research? And then second, is that because of this excessive you know, myopic focus on small text on the screen? Uh, there's a dramatic increase. It's predicted that by 2050, 50% of the population in the U.S. will be nearsighted. Wow. What is it now, just for comparison? I would have to look at the exact number, but I would imagine probably in the teens to probably yeah, teens. Nowhere near 50. Nowhere near that. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we have studies even post-COVID now. In, in 2021, a study came out uh, with children ages six to eight, who clearly showed an increase in myopia through the COVID lockdown. Uh, there was a Dutch study where teenagers had an increased level of myopia correlated with using screens for more than 20 minutes a day without taking breaks. You know, and, and although this isn't really anything new in my field, uh, so much, COVID was different because we were all locked inside or many of us were locked inside, but you know, the the visual stress that's being presented for most of us that don't have the tools in place, we adapt or we avoid. And, and if you think about eyesight just almost as a symptom, you know, the symptom is distance blur. The problem is near visual stress. And whether that's a focusing system, the internal muscles responsible for clarity that has difficulty sustaining focus or maintaining flexibility, the muscles themselves become taught and locked in. And then the blur in the distance is a symptom of that near functional problem. So many doctors treat the symptom. And in many cases, you have to treat the symptom, but that's here. Here's new, stronger glasses. Very often that can become your new normal. You then adapt to that lens. You need something stronger to maintain that same clarity. We go down this vicious cycle. But at some point in life, for many people, the glasses prescription changes and people wonder, well, why is that? And there's all these old wives tales about why that, why that happens. But anatomically, our bodies stop changing in terms of structure and, and, you know, when we're done growing, yet the eyes can often elongate and change shape based off of the need to lock into that focusing system. So if we can think about the focusing system as like an old school camera, which Many of the younger listeners probably have no idea what that even means, but uh, the manual focus that you're literally turning is shifting how in front of you on the Z-axis, how, how you can allow something to be clear there. But when we're stuck at one distance, autofocus stops working, and then that becomes, again, your new normal. And very often, the prescription, I'm saying that in air quotes, for distance is a different prescription than what should be prescribed for near. Because for near, the demands are different. And I'm a big believer that the ideal prescription for anybody should be the weakest lens possible that is the most balanced, that allows us to meet the demands of life. If we're seeing HD clarity at every single distance, very often that's locking that focusing system in too focally, too centrally, and then that's when adaptation occurs. So I'm, I, pro I promote 20 happy rather than 2020 where we want to be able to meet the visual demands of life, obviously be legal to drive based off of state regulations. But, you know, you don't always have to see the hairs on every single person's face at every distance. And the key is finding the right prescription for the right person 
that allows them to meet their activities of daily living appropriately. Yeah. Well, I can speak personally. You can see I have these reader uh, reading glasses on now, uh, which I I didn't need until I don't know maybe four months ago. I woke I woke up. It was pretty sudden in my case. And what I've noticed is just how much worse my near distance vision is since I started wearing these glasses. It's pretty it's it's pretty dramatic, and, and it feels it's notable. Let's talk amino acids for a moment. On my recent episode, Why Amino Acids Are the Building Blocks of Life, I discuss why we need amino acids at all stages of life and how key on aminos can help you live a long, active, healthy life. To truly understand just how vital amino acids are for health, think about your body and what it's made of. You've probably heard before that it's made up of mostly water. What you probably haven't heard is that everything else in your body is 50% amino acids. These building blocks of life are essential for health and fitness. This is why Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. I drink them every day for energy, muscle, and recovery. Keon Aminos is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers or junk, undergoes rigorous quality testing, and tastes amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want to naturally boost energy, build lean muscle, and enhance athletic recovery, you need to get Keon Aminos. You can now save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases. Just go to getkion.com slash Cresser. That's G-E-T-K-I-O-N dot com slash Cresser to get my fundamental supplement for fitness, Kion Aminos. To live your healthiest, longest life, you need to understand what's going on inside your body. People age at different speeds, and generic annual blood work doesn't properly evaluate your biological age, but Inside Tracker does. Inside Tracker is a truly personalized nutrition and performance system designed to extend your health span and slow the aging process. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. Add InnerAge 2.0 to any plan to calculate your true biological age and see how you're aging from the inside out. For a limited time, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Cresser. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Cresser. People joke and say you blow out the candles on your 40th, 42nd birthday, or like you, you had a bad dream and you wake up and all of a sudden your arms aren't long enough and you can't make something clear in front of you. I mean, there are anatomical changes to the structure inside of our eye that occur as we age where uh, the focusing system and the lens become more rigid and less flexible. But just like any muscle in our body, if we stop using them, we lose voluntary control over them. So I have plenty of patients I work with who do active work every day or more intensive work with office-based vision therapy to prolong the need for reading glasses. And if we're intentional behind that and we're exercising the systems in the way that we could or should, we can at least delay the onset of these symptoms. Um, but very often, you know, getting that first pair of glasses, it acts as a crutch. And then that becomes your new normal. And then you're taking off the, the glasses and it seems like what you were doing before is not even possible. And yet again, we often go down that vicious cycle of just reaching for more and more and more, kind of like medications, just increasing the dosage. Um, you know, if we, we can be intentional, we, we can slow down that change. We can even reverse it in many cases 
if we develop the right rapport with with the different muscle systems. Yeah, I've I've just try to wear them less at this point and try you know spend some time just looking at things even if I can't see them perfectly well, like just kind of lingering a little bit, see if they can come into focus. And this is, I have no idea if that's helpful or not, but let's actually move, let's talk about vision therapy. Cause I think this is a good, good segue to, to that. Like what can people do? And, you know, as a functional medicine clinician, I'm, I'm always of course, keenly focused on cause and effect. And obviously it goes without saying that one of the things people can do is not do the things that are causing the problem in the first place. So, you know, for kids and screens, that's, you know, that's a whole nother conversation of how to manage that. And we've had many shows and guests on that topic, but uh, speaking more specifically about what they can do from a vision therapy perspective, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. So most people are probably wondering, I've never heard about vision therapy. What even is vision therapy? I describe vision therapy as it's kind of like physical therapy for the brain through the eyes. So it's essentially rewiring the software of, of one's brain to change how they're taking in the world around them and processing visual information. It requires extra training and extra desire and extra knowledge from the doctor. And you don't have to be board certified in vision therapy to offer vision therapy, but I would offer, I would argue the level of care is dramatically different when you are. Vision therapy has been around for a long time, but I would say in the last five to seven years has become uh, almost mainstream in, in many cities because of the wonderful benefits we're noticing with rewiring the brain post-concussion uh, to establish a lot better integration and synergy between the different postural systems and visual systems and vestibular systems and uh, so much of what gets disrupted from concussion and head injury, and we can talk about that as, as well maybe later, um, but from a vision therapy standpoint, it's an individualized program where you're ideally working with doctors or under the supervision of doctors to arrange the conditions appropriately to raise to your awareness what your visual system is doing so that you can self-regulate, self-monitor, and figure out how to eliminate these maladaptations to make it so that the visual system and the brain are actually operating the way in which the brain is wired. So, so often we see if it's hard for the eyes to work together, a adaptation occur that occurs where there's almost like a rivalry or a competition over sensory input where the brain picks one eye and ignores the other eye or focuses the eyes at different planes or converges behind the target because it's that hard to converge on the target and these spatial mismatches occur which allow for double vision and movement of images and you know all the symptoms, but also depth perception. Depth perception is something that at any age can be taught. The brain can be rewired by equalizing the skills between both eyes so that the visual centers in the back of the brain and the visual cortex can respond to that information appropriately. Um, but I would say really solid vision therapy is treatment that integrates cognition and balance and movement and vestibular input as early as the patient allows, so essentially from the beginning. And ideally, it's office therapy with uh, home reinforcement, where the new learning takes place in office under the guidance of, of a doctor. And then the reinforcement is to establish muscle memory and make the learning more habitual. Uh, there are lots of programs out there as well that can be 
uh, helpful for some at improving symptoms a certain percentage. Uh, I, have a, I have a recent program launched called ScreenFit, uh, which does a really nice job as a visual wellness program uh, to train and rehabilitate the visual skills and abilities necessary to support these high visual demands of screen usage and to teach you how to eliminate some of the um, challenges that we, that we experience on a daily basis. Absolutely, individualized care one-on-one -on -one is, is the gold standard and that should never change. But we are now seeing occupational therapy and physical therapy and lots of other doctors adopting uh, vision therapy-like exercises with tracking and cross-midline types of activities. Uh, but so much of the world also takes place on the Z-axis, which requires eye coordination and convergence and divergence and all those other areas we spoke about. So, yeah, let's talk about those two different options there. Um, if someone wants to find a vision therapist in their area, is is that the term that they would use if they would, you know, just um, Google vision therapy? I mean, you're in Maryland, so if someone's near you, they can come to see you. But if, if they're somewhere else, could they just Google vision therapy plus the name of where they are? And would that do it? Or, or are there different names of that therapy in different places? Uh, so there's a, a few different names for what vision therapy is. Sometimes you'll see neurooptometric vision therapy. Sometimes you'll see vision training. Sometimes you'll see vision therapy. I would say the best place to go to is covd.org. And that's the College of Optometrists and Vision Development, the international organization that board certifies doctors in vision therapy and rehabilitation. There's a wonderful located doctor section where you can type in your address, your zip code, your state, your country, and actually adjust the, the search radius. And it can tell you the closest doctors within that radius. If, uh, if the letters FCOVD are after the doctor's name, that means they're a fellow of the College of Optometrists and Vision Development or essentially that they're board certified in vision therapy and rehabilitation. Again, you don't have to be board certified to offer vision therapy and to help people, but I would argue the level of care and the understanding is different with those doctors who are, so that's a great place to look. Uh, another great resource is visionhelp.com, so V-I-S-I-O-N-H-E-L-P.com, and that's uh, an organization I'm a part of as well that has uh, about 10, of, 10 practices around the country. All of us are thought leaders in this area with goals of just Raising Awareness, great resource for all the research, literature, even videos on how vision impacts learning and sports and eye turns and lazy eyes and autism and ADD and ADHD, which so often gets misdiagnosed uh, based off of just slapping labels on behaviors that can be that can come from so many uh, vision problems. So, you know, I, I think definitely ask your primary care doctor about vision therapy. But again, not all doctors are in agreement because the research and literature to support vision therapy that has been groundbreaking is from the last decade or so. So although there's been research for a long time, uh, many doctors are taught in school decades ago that certain things didn't work or weren't effective. But I would say uh, we should all be keeping up to date with the latest literature and research and doing the best to stay uh, aware of this so that we can help our patients as best as possible. And again, I, I think the, the head injury world is, is now be, becoming incredibly receptive of vision therapy. And vision therapy is the missing piece for so many people to return to learn, return to life, and 
to get back to previous level of function after after a concussion or head injury does occur. And how about the ScreenFit program? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So the ScreenFit program, uh, you can find it at www.screenfit.com. And this is a program that empowers you with the tools to support healthy visual habits and efficient use of the eyes together as a coordinated team. Our beta tests had individuals across the board age-wise six, and our oldest was uh, in her 80s. So it's basically, I, I relate it to almost like a workout program where if you go home, a workout program that does sit-ups and push-ups and air squats and you know, has the right sequencing and, and is more body weight type stuff. This is a program where you don't need any equipment. It's all designed to be done from a phone, tablet, or computer, the screen that we're already on way more than we should be. Uh, but it's a daily workout. Uh, there's It's about 10 to 15 minutes a day. It's programmed for six weeks. There's two different phases of it. The first phase works on the foundational visual skills. So activities like follow this ball across the screen screen as it's making a unique pattern to here's a here's a way to constrict focus look close for x amount of seconds and then look far for x amount of seconds as you're holding a pencil at a certain distance to the second uh, phase which is much more of an integration phase which works a lot more on eye coordination and eye teaming and a lot more of, of the vestibular impact of staring at screens and what that can can do in terms of our sedentary. Um, but it's a great program. And, and uh, what's really exciting is we've had some tremendous interest from very large organizations uh, as corporate wellness programs, but even from insurance companies recognizing that, oh, well, if prescriptions aren't changing every every year or if we're able to offer this as, as a certain option for certain people, the impact that has on overall health and lack of medication to treat symptoms and lack of increasing prescription to increase uh, based off of the, you know, the adaptations that are occurring, it, it, it's a pretty exciting thing we've been working on for several years and finally out uh, within the last couple months. That is exciting, and I'm definitely going to recommend this as a resource because, I, 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 like I said, I'm, I'm really concerned, especially about the impacts of, of screens on kids' vision. And you, you mentioned something in passing that I want to go back to because ADD and ADHD are epidemic uh, among kids at this point, and you uh, mentioned a link between vision issues and ADHD. So I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. So uh, there is not a blood test for ADD or ADHD. And very often ADD or ADHD is not a biochemical imbalance in the brain. It is a cluster of symptoms that can come from many different areas, but there is a very intimate link between visual attention and overall cognitive attention. I did a progress eval for a young man yesterday that we're working with who is on a 50 milligram uh, extended release ADD medication and a 20 milligram uh, add-on at the end of the day. And when I first met him, he had significant visual developmental delays. He had trouble focusing his eyes, hadn't even learned how to use that system. He had a convergence insufficiency, meaning... Uh, he was aligning his eyes as if where he was looking up close was significantly farther back 
And it was so hard for him to maintain eye focus that, of course, his brain focus was then also compromised. The medical world, which, you know, likes to assign labels to behaviors, uh, looked at these, his challenges of difficulty focusing his eyes and uh, not remembering what he was reading and being distracted by what's in the periphery when he's in a classroom and trying to read and decided, well, let's make it take a more structural approach because that's all they knew. And his medication level has dramatically increased year after year after year. I've been working with him for three months and he's now no longer taking the, the add-on pill at the end of the day. And he had leftover, uh, I believe, 10 milligram extended release pills from when he was much younger that he started taking, not, not with my guidance, but uh, they said his, his overall attention has improved dramatically that he's been taking after the last few weeks. And their plan is to wean him off all medications. You know, it, it's unfortunate because vision is not everything but it is a very large piece to the puzzle. And I do not think that ADD or ADHD or even dyslexia for that matter can be an accurate diagnosis without these hidden functional vision problems being ruled out first. And I give screenings to doctors on what types of simple tests can be done to just see if, if there is a potential for a functional vision problem. We can take a pen or pencil and uh, bring it across midline and, and track that image. And there should be no head movements. It should be all eye movements. And we should be able to have smooth, effortless eye movements across our midline and take that same pencil and bring it at arm's length and then bring it down midline towards your nose. It should be effortless all the way in where you're seeing one image all the way in. If either of those situations is not occurring, that is a clear sign in a 30 second, very uh, delicate test there that vision is potentially interfering with the brain's ability to sustain focus. If a parent wanted to take their child in for that kind of exam, would that be done in a typical visual vision exam or would they have to ask for those uh, specifically? They absolutely should be done in typical vision exams, but they are not. Um, especially with healthcare these days, so many eye doctors are you know, packing patients in like sardines and you're not even spending much time with the doctors and it's all automated. And, um, you know, we live in a three-dimensional world, the, the learning and the measurements need to take place in three-dimensional space. So I think specifically asking to be tested for convergence insufficiency, any doctor can do that or should be able to do that. Or for a tracking problem, I think the interpretation of those, those results and what that means obviously would leave some to be desired. But you know, I think that's something that if you know what to look for, it's pretty glaring and hard not to miss. And, you know, a child in particular who is uh, loves to be read to, but really dislikes reading on their own or is distracted in the classroom with desk work where uh, they're really listening to what the teacher's presenting rather than being able to take it in with, with their eyes. They're relying on a different sensory system because the, the input is so confusing visually. Those are clear signs that there's a likely vision problem or a child who is smart in everything but school. You know, I think there's so much being asked of us from a just sustained near concentration task standpoint that very often if performance and behaviors are inconsistent, I think that's a great sign that something is interfering and something is, is uh, not allowing that person to achieve at their potential. Hmm. So fascinating. I, I really learned a lot. And I think this is 
one of those things that is just not even on the radar for most people. And it's so profoundly important for so many different reasons that, that we've discussed and how vision affects, you know, that sort of bi-directional relationship where our brain development affects vision, but our vision affects our brain and, and how we, how we essentially relate to the world around us. So yeah. Research. Research says that one in 10 kids has a vision problem significant enough to impact learning. And that statistic is from a while ago. Yeah. So that number, in my opinion, is probably two to three times that right now. Convergence insufficiency, depending on what you read, anywhere from around 20% of kids have this problem. And there's a very intimate link between convergence insufficiency and difficulty focusing. And these problems like myopia are increasing at an alarming rate just based off of what we're asking our, our kids to do at early and earlier ages before they're visually ready or have the development in place to support those, those tasks. Right. And then there's the added impact of COVID over the past few years where screen time increased by 1.5 fold in most kids um, because they were at home, not at school. And even after they've gone back to school, that additional screen time, I don't think it stayed at quite the same level, but it hasn't dropped down to pre-COVID levels. So we have, we don't even really know yet what the implications of that additional increase will be. And so many schools by me are now pivoting where, you know, they did the virtual learning and everyone uh, got used to being on tablets and screens at home. And now tablets are just commonplace in the classroom even. Yep. Uh, I did a tour of a school last week and, and kindergartners are on tablets in the dark. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge experiment that we're performing. You know, it, it's almost like switching the food, you know, that we serve kids. I mean, which is already atrocious in schools to, some kind of weird mixture of things without any research, you know, validating whether that's a good idea. You know, it, it's, it's always struck me that in, in particularly not in both public and private schools, that so much of what happens is not based on any evidence at all. It's just decisions that are made by administrators or teachers, you know, based on prevailing trends or whatever, uh, is driving it, you know, in some cases, you know, like, uh, oh, let's start doing assignments on Google Classroom because that's easier for the teachers. Well, now that means kids as, you know, in elementary school are using Google Classroom. So they're, they're interacting with the tablet or a computer to do their homework instead of a worksheet, you know, printed out worksheet that, that we have when we were growing up. And from, if you're just looking at it from an efficiency perspective, that makes a lot of sense. It makes it more efficient. It makes it easier for teachers to have everything in one place. But when you, but nobody's thinking about these issues that you're talking about. Like how will that affect vision? How will that affect brain development? How will that affect social development? How will that affect uh, kids' empathy? You know, capacity for empathy. How will it affect their physical health, you know, there's all these repetitive stress injuries associated with excessive screen use and neck, you know, text neck, I think they call it where, where, where you know, because you're leaning, you're leaning over and looking at your phone or the computer for so long. It's, it just seems really haphazard to me. And, and you're then seeing this generation of kids who, you know, I'm sure you see this in, in interviews as well, can't even hold a conversation. 
because they're used to communicating via the written word versus maintaining eye contact. You know, any, any change in eye movement is a change in attention, whether it's voluntary or involuntary. And if we have trouble controlling our eye movements, we're going to have trouble controlling our attention. So often eye contact is a faulty integration of that central and that peripheral visual processing, where it's almost like we can look everywhere but lock in at somebody's eyes because our brain is imbalanced and in this disequilibrium, unable to not look at what's around us. And it's scary from a, a health standpoint, from a nutrition standpoint, from a circadian rhythm standpoint, but also down the road, knowing that we're men and womankind are, are, are changing and how we interact with each other is changing. And I think we're going to look back on this time and recognize that the the increase in screen usage and computer usage, which is wonderful for so many things in life, also has really shifted how our how we're interacting with one another. Absolutely. So yeah, if you could share again the link to ScreenFit so people who want to get started and can work on this right away and where people can learn more about your work and then maybe a couple of the links for people who want the one-on-one, -on -one, you know, want to actually find a, a clinician in their local area to work with directly, that would be super helpful. Absolutely. So ScreenFit, you can find on www.screenfit.com. The international organization that board certifies doctors in vision therapy and rehabilitation, that's covd.org. And then a great resource as well for just education and awareness, visionhelp.com, V-I-S-I-O-N-H-E-L-P.com. And then for me, you can find me uh, at concussionclear.com. And that's a way uh, to work with us. We see a lot of people who come from out of state or out of country who come in for intensive boot camps. Uh, my practice is in uh, Bethesda and Annapolis, Maryland, two locations, and it's Applebaum Vision. So you can find us at applebaumvision.com. And then uh, myself, I'm on Instagram at Dr. Bryce Applebaum. Uh, but we spell Applebaum very uniquely because we like to make things difficult for people. It's E-L, not L-E. All right. Well, thank you, Bryce. It's been really illuminating to learn more about this. And I, like I said, I think it's one of these issues that's just not getting nearly enough attention. And so I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing here and um, really enjoy the conversation. I appreciate you caring so much and using your ability to, to cast a very large net on the population and the world to just raise awareness because when we all know better, we can all do better. Absolutely. 100%. Okay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you got a lot out of this and keep sending your questions to chriscresser.com slash podcast question. We'll see you next time. And that's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. 
Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.